A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of $15,178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. I'm Alva. I'm Stephen. And you're listening to the New Statesman podcast. On today's episode, we discuss the G7 and the Northern Ireland Protocol. And you ask us, what is the government's culture war strategy and is it working? So we are without Anoush today because she is off reporting for a piece that she'll be telling us about on Monday. So it's just the two of us, me and Stephen in Westminster, which is why you can hear protesting (laughs) as ever. Stephen, Boris Johnson and Joe Biden are meeting in a few hours at the time of recording for their first bilateral ahead of the G7. And all the talk is about the new pressure that Joe Biden is exerting to come to some sort of compromise on the Northern Ireland Protocol. Do you think that this intervention reported in the Times will make any sort of difference to the British approach? The American government has done a sort of classic non-denial denial of basically kind of, you know, reports that we stole a red car are entirely false. And it's just like, well, so you're not denying you've stolen a yellow car then. But... Um, The broader challenge that Biden creates for the British government is in the Trump era, and particularly actually under Johnson, uh, the British government had done a pretty successful job of sort of, as well as France doing as well, doing the kind of thing of going around the G7 base work. We're still backing the Baltic states, which I mean, is also a thing that France, the other security power on the continent was doing as well. But Although Biden's election was greeted with relief by the overwhelming majority of Conservative MPs and, and even more, more so among those who are actually in office, uh, and they were like, oh, it's brilliant because of our climate change um, objectives, it's brilliant because of X, brilliant because Y. The problem is, is actually the, the vast swathe of issues on which they're more aligned with Biden than Trump kind of don't matter because so is everyone else. Yeah, at least in a G7 context. Obviously, there are big problems with China and Russia, neither of whom are, are in the which means that the awkward partner immediately becomes the United Kingdom. I think it's not so much that it changes the pressures, but the reason why the British government ended up going, actually, we can live with the border in the sea after all, is because politically there was no other option that allowed them to meet their domestic objectives and their foreign policy objectives in terms of, you know, continuing to get along with other, with other nations. And I kind of think that hasn't changed with the sort of possible exception that maybe the difficulties of it mean that they do eventually go, actually, let's align on phytosanitary standards. But I just mm. don't buy it. What do you reckon? I wrote something a little bit to this effect in Morning Call this morning as well. I actually think that as well as this sort of diplomatic warning, you know, this formal expression of the US not really being terribly impressed with how the UK has been negotiating with the EU, I actually think that probably the more interesting bit of that story is less the stick and more the carrot. So that this offer that 
if the UK were to reach some sort of compromise with the EU that did involve alignment in some way to make the the problems with the Northern Irish Protocol ease, that the US would still make sure that that didn't hamper their efforts to get a UK-US trade deal. And it just strikes me that this means sort of weirdly and paradoxically that having spent so long trying to diverge from the EU or having the ability to diverge from the EU potentially to strike up a trade deal with the US, they now are kind of being given an incentive by Biden to align in order to get this trade deal. I think it does change things slightly. It's it's the fact that this is presented as an option rather than, I think, before it was phrased as a punishment. You know, if you don't obey the Good Friday Agreement, we won't have a trade deal. Now, it's if you reach a compromise, you might actually be effectively more likely to get one. I think it could make a difference. I just think that the UK looks increasingly isolated on this issue. And in a way, I think this move by the US is quite a deft way of forcing them, like the British side, to pit, to split hairs about what they actually care about with Brexit. Like, is it about the the principle of sovereignty or is it about the prizes of Brexit, like securing trade deals and working with partners? And if it's the latter, if it is the sort of the great American trade deal prize and being able to go to the electorate at the next election, Brexit has worked so well because, look, we have this new trade deal, even if it doesn't amount to very much. I wonder if they more pragmatically will prefer the Brexit prize over the Brexit principle, if that makes sense. That is the sort of great unknowable. The, the other sort of interesting thing in all this, I, I think at least, mm-hmm. is since the last time we spoke about this, has the political situation got worse in Northern Ireland or better for unionism? I think you can interestingly argue it both ways. Mm-hmm. In the, on the one hand, the UUP has, uh, under its new leadership, has, has done a lot of interesting things to try and make itself more transfer friendly. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, um, the DUP is essentially imploding. Do you think that also changes the political options here in Westminster? Paradoxically, I say this with a caveat that I was off all of last week, so I'm sure that in the, even though I was home in Northern Ireland for a lot of that, I'm sure that there are small developments with the DUP that I missed because I was really trying not to follow the news. But I think that in general, paradoxically, it might ease the tensions around the protocol in the short term that the DUP leadership has changed to reflect the frustrations with the protocol more. It makes sort of managing it and coming up with a solution harder because Arlene Foster was more determined to make it work than Edwin Poots seems to be. But I think that, you know, when we saw those protests a few months ago about, you know, a whole manner of things, but in large part about about those Brexit arrangements, A big part of the problem was that those people didn't feel like they were being listened to or that their objections to the Brexit arrangements for Northern Ireland were being heard as part of this bigger sort of feeling of unionist alienation. And I think that now that those concerns do have a sort of political vent, Mm -hmm. it maybe makes those tensions and that feeling of alienation a little bit less acute. Do you agree? I think that, that part is certainly true. I think also the... The sort of interesting subplot of the, um, you know, the the Poots leadership uh, handover slash transition slash civil war was the repudiation of the Westminster Parliamentary Party. And of course, one of the reasons why we've ended up where we were is that the Westminster Parliamentary Party, this is why this myth of, oh, you know, 
if only Arlene Foster had done X. The idea Arlene Foster would ever have been strong enough politically, or indeed, I, I just think the idea that any leader of the DUP would have been strong enough to deliver mm. um, the parliamentary party down here for something that kept everyone within the customs and regulatory orbit, I just think is nonsense. But I think the fact that the protocol in its current form clearly just does not work in terms of uh, Northern Irish politics. The big thing that matters is, look, whatever happens, the largest party in that tendency is, is going to be one which does not think the protocol can work, which I think means that it is clearly going to have to change in some way. The only change that meets the British government's long-term objectives with reference to Northern Ireland is alignment on five sanitary standards. The flip side, though, of the US going, you know, do this and you get a shiny trade deal, is it's not true to say, oh, if you're aligned on phytosanitary standards, you can't have a meaningful US-UK trade deal. You can, and that deal can be great for British consumers, right? Because they could have tariff-free access to the whole of the European agri-food market when they go to the supermarket and they could and you know, they could have access to the whole, yeah, to the whole of the American agri-food market when they go to the supermarket. What it's an utterly terrible arrangement for are British farmers. Because they, you know, kind of wouldn't really be able to face in either direction, right? They, particularly seeing as the environmental view of farming, as envisaged by the Conservative Party at the moment, is high welfare standards, high climate, yeah, all of which are, are very sort of worthy and, and admirable aims. But if you are also doing that in a context where farmers from the from the US can also sell here, farmers from Australia and New Zealand can also sell here, uh, then I think you very rapidly get into well, uh, we've talked about this before, but you know. A situation in which, like, let's remake Billy Elliot, but this time it's a farmer's son who wants to become a, a ballerina. I mean, this, this comes back to the central question, isn't it? Which is, as you say, does the Brexit prize overwhelm the Brexit principle? Because they're clearly going to have to pick one or the other. If you've been enjoying our podcast and want to find out more about what we think and some of our colleagues too, then why not subscribe to the New Statesman? You can get 12 weeks for £12. Go to newstatesman.com forward slash subscribe 12. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. And now it's time for a section we like to call You Ask Us. So this is a question from Peter Thorpe, who has asked, what should we make of the government's culture war strategy in general, but also specifically Matthew Dancona's piece, which he wrote for Tortoise, um, on the influence of Manira Mirza and Dougie Smith within Downing Street in particular? Stephen, there have been new culture wars developments this week with the Ollie Robinson tweets and sanctions and so on and an intervention from the culture secretary, Oliver Dowden, saying that he thought that the action taken was a bit over the top. Should we begin by sort of thinking about what the government's culture war strategy is? Actually, the weird thing is, is does the government have a strategy to pursue culture as yeah to to kind of seek and increase the salience of culture issues as dividing lines and it really depends on who in the government you ask as basically every uh, experienced tory watcher whether it's andrew jimson or 
Paul Goodman or Katie Balls will say, yeah, look, this Downing Street is more of a court than a modern Downing Street, yeah, in which kind of everyone kind of goes, oh, I, I think I have a good relationship with the with the Sun King, but I'm not sure I do. Yeah, this and this piece is very good, and yeah, you should you should use your um your free thing a week, or indeed you know subscribe to a second, but only if you have already subscribed to the New Statesman. So very much you know if you subscribe to one thing, subscribe to us. But if you subscribe to two things, you could subscribe to Tortoise to read this excellent piece, um because it's not just that Manira in particular is really influential, and you know she's sort of said repeatedly you know of her and her partner Dougie, look we come as a pair, but mm. and he very much comes because she. Yeah, has worked with him for a long time and is, is very influential. And she does have, well, it's not even so much for her intellectual thing. She just believes this stuff, right? Mm. And she is one of the great survivors in his court. But ultimately, it is her influence is because it's his court, you know, he's an ultra delegator and therefore his advi- who advises him is really important. But there has always, whether it was in London or now, been a contradiction, between a kind of contradiction between the fact that he is very much a sort of, you know, let's all come together, ha, 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 style politician. And she isn't a let's all come together style of politician. Mm-hmm. And I think the thing about both the kind of, well, there's there you know, the kind of the supply, sublime and the ridiculous of, of, of culture wars this week, right? There's a, a student union voting to change the decoration. It's common, a subject so tedious that I actually feel my heart beating slower just having to think about having to think about it because I just don't want to, yeah, I do think there's a big problem that we've just, in general, as a political class, one, we deny like young people's right to privacy. And I think that does have a read across to some of the all your problems. But also we then just give it a national importance and prominence it doesn't deserve and shouldn't have. But is that part of the strategy or is that the the failure mode of education ministers in conservative governments? But, you know, for basically for most of the decade, if you're an education minister and you've been doing badly in your job, the thing you have pivoted to, yes, actually since 2015, um, not, as you can see, not because of any particular political change since then, but obviously under Gove, there was a huge political agenda of various education reform. Nicky Morgan came in with a specific brief of, we just want to keep the policy, but now we've had the change, we just want someone who will make the stakeholders feel good about themselves again. And then ditto, that was kind of also um, the position of, of Justin Greening. But yeah, when, when there's a minister who's not very good in that department, the thing they, the button they've always pressed, or if there's a minister who is actually good at their day job but they want another job, is to kind of opine on some stupid thing students are doing in a mm. kind of way to sort of get their profile. I guess this is very long which I say. I think the interesting is it's not actually clear to what the extent there is a culture war strategy and to what extent there's kind of, because the government is so kind of advisor-led and because everyone kind of waits for their steer to see whether or not the currently unassailable prime minister likes something, he kind of grunts something in the affirmation and like the machinery of the Tory party and the government kind of like moves towards his whim, even if it's actually not a particularly concrete whim. Yeah. Um, but yeah, what do you think? Does the government have a culture war strategy? Well, it's interesting. So the, the argument in Matthew Dancona's piece, if people haven't read it, they can also listen to an interview that Matthew Dancona did about it on the Today programme on the, I think, the 8th of July. His argument is that it is a quite deliberate strategy that in the wake of the death of George Floyd, people in Downing Street realised that this would just be an issue that would rumble on and that they had to be quite strategic about their long-term game. Mm. So when Oliver Dowden, for example, comes out and says that the response to Ollie Robinson's historic tweets was over the top, it looks like a 
a sort of off the cuff remark, but that there's a kind of there's a strategy behind it that they sort of leave this trail of breadcrumbs where they just sort of present themselves as I suppose commonsensical mm. on culture wars issues. And there's a sort of deliberate attempt to position themselves as slightly sympathetic to some of the stuff, but you know, to sort of project this sort of impression that you you find it all a little bit too much and a bit too woke and a bit a bit ridiculous and full on and political correctness gone mad. And the reason for that being that, I mean, Matthew Dancona writes that really the calculation in Downing Street is just that numerically that's where the majority of voters are. They're broadly sympathetic to some of the bigger principles that, you know, people shouldn't be racist or sexist or whatever, but they find specific responses to it a bit much. And that's where the strategy is. Um, And also, secondly, that this is the it's described by Matthew Dancona as like the B plot of the Boris Johnson premiership, that it's not like the main thing going on because that's the pandemic response, but that it's the second thing rumbling on in the background. And I think that's probably broadly correct, but I don't think that's a very good thing because what what does that amount to? Like having a culture war strategy is not a set of policy objectives projecting that you're commonsensical and sort of projecting a kind of powerlessness as you were kind of describing a complete powerlessness to change the minds of students to sort of convince them that they should be hanging a portrait of the queen in their living space at a university or you know to express regret over a decision that a sporting body has made they project this powerlessness and project a kind of maybe common sense approach to it but they are the government And why is the B-plot of the government just expressing alarm and dismay at something rather than the first plot and the second plot being about things that the government is actually doing and changing about society? I think it probably is true that insofar as there are strategies at play, that there is a bit of a, you know, there's a concerted attempt to do this and to weave this narrative throughout the Boris Johnson premiership. But I just, I'm not really convinced that that's at all a good thing. You know, I think it suggests a kind of an unserious government if your big thing, rather than having anything to actually do, you talk about decisions that students are making or a sports, like a sporting personality's historic tweets. The interesting thing we should now get into the Ollie Robinson thing, which is one of my one of my many objections to Oliver Dowden's uh, tenure as culture secretary is he is a culture media and sport secretary who seems to be wholly uninterested in culture media or sport. Yeah, very much our football is a land of contrast. Candidly, I do think right then while his tweets uh, were shocking, they were a long time ago. I actually think his age is sort of neither here nor there, right? The whole, like, oh, he was 18 at the time, what? So we're saying it would have been materially worse or better if he'd been 17 or 19. I just think that's a nonsense. The important thing is it was a long time ago and he has given a fulsome apology than, you know, he's not tried to do the, I'm dreadfully sorry if people were offended. He's just apologised, right? Mm. And therefore, I think, although, you know, obviously you, sh- you should, if you're an organisation, investigate whether or not, um, you know, he's, he's then, you know, kind of, gone out and then on Facebook we're like lol just given an apology I don't believe in um you should obviously investigate that but I think investigation prior to a further suspension is probably the right intervention and I would hope that the culture secretary would have an opinion about the ECB but seeing as that that is also ultimately okay yeah it's interesting because you know it's a talented cricketer and it obviously therefore has relevance specifically to the culture secretary 
ultimately, the question of what you do about historic offensive behavior, you know, when someone's apologized, when it's in the past, when they went to, is a labor market question. And the government has a majority of 86. Uh, so if the government wants to do something about it, they can. I do think you're right. One of the weird problems with their cultural strategy is that I don't get how it maps onto a winner-take-all politics where broadly if you have a if you have a decent sized not parliamentary majority which this government has you can win the cultural war you know if you want to pass uh you know every student union must have a picture of the queen in its living quarters bill you can do that right <laughs> if, if you want to pass something in which you have a broad set of principles to inform uh complaints organizations where you basically go here's what we think the framework for you know a complaint an apology a historic sweep if you want to do that which i think you should want to do, uh, I, you know, Sarah uh, Manavis uh, wrote a really good piece for us going, look, we, we do need to have a common understanding about how should something I, I've said that's, you know, hugely offensive, which I've apologized for in 2005, be be handled, right? We, we should have a commonly agreed set of rules that are broadly understood and have been affirmed uh, democratically. But if you're the democratically elected government, well, yeah, get on with it. But I still think that if the government went into the next election and the public realm was in the state and the economy was in the state and they were talking about cultural issues that they could have fixed with a click of the fingers, I think that's a bad position for an elected government to be in in our system. Yeah, everywhere where cultural stuff works electorally, it's because for one reason or another, there is actually an electoral argument why people need to keep voting for your party who's not necessarily fixed the problem. If you're the Republicans, you have a whole, I think, ridiculous system of government that's sort of inherently not that democratic, but it builds in all sorts of sort of frustrations and veto players, which means you can always go, we didn't fix this this time, but here's why we still are deserving of another vote. Whereas with us, I just, yeah, it would just make me nervous if I were a Conservative MP. I mean, I would find immense reassurance uh, looking at the other side of the house at the moment, but Mm. that could change for any number of reasons. Yeah, although the thing the thing is, I think it probably will work fine. Less so because of what the Conservatives are doing and more just because of the media's role in it. I mean, I think if you were a Times reader, for example, or a reader of another paper, but I think, you know, there are so many people who read the Times who would be developing a worldview reading reports in that newspaper over a series of years that the world is fundamentally changing and that younger people are much less tolerant of debate and disagreement and they're more fragile and there are all these things whether it's trans rights whether it's sort of not wanting pictures of the queen hanging up that norms around debate and, and and various values are all kind of changing and if you I don't know if you're six years old and read the times I think that, that would be quite disconcerting because I don't think that when maybe that 60 year old was at university even though the environment was probably quite similar and the students were probably similarly lefty in their different ways it wasn't sort of reported on in the same way and so I think probably there are just huge numbers of people in the UK right now who feel like their country is changing into something they don't really recognize in on these sort of cultural issues and that they can't keep up and that's quite scary and alienating I don't think that there's actually much basis in reality for that I think the students have always kind of been radical and boycotted things and not wanted to invite people to their students unions or whatever it is But 
I think that the the world you've projected by newspapers and so on would make you think otherwise. And so I think maybe people do want to kind of cling on to a government that voices that anxiety in some way. It's just, yeah, it's just bad for, for other reasons that it doesn't suggest a government that has things it actually wants to do. I mean, why is plot A, the pandemic and the B plot reflecting people's anxieties about changing society back to them rather than, yeah, as you say, seizing the opportunity to change things. I think I, I would agree with that. I kind of, I keep thinking about politics. I've been reading about lots for, you know, various reasons. The fact that the new right, so, you know, Thatcher, Rankin, right, they had a, a similar kind of programme of, ooh, dangerous student, union, not dangerous, union, you know, um, dangerous councils with their loony left ideas, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, one, although, you know, well, this is the thing is, like, actually, Section 28, as well as being a, a bigoted and hateful law, did not work, right? You, you, because you can't encourage homosexuality any more than you can encourage someone to like cheese. So you couldn't prove it for a number of reasons. So it was a pointless as well as a, a hateful law. But that was all about bolstering a coalition around a platform of serious economic change. Mm. Um, it was the C plot. It had the same, well, it basically had the same function as campaigning against police cuts did for the Labour Party in 2017. Whereas this is kind of like if the Labour Party in 2017 had been like, we want to campaign against police cuts. It's like, do you have any other plans? No, no, no. The state resist the size of the state should stay exactly as it is. But we just want to go on and on and on about how there's no, there are no police. I think the other problem for it, right, is I think it's true to say that they don't actually need to show progress on it among sort of the half of their coalition. They they win by loads against Labour, right? The the kind of 60-30 bits of the age distribution. But I do think there's a real risk of the Conservative Party of forgetting that 30% is a big number, right? Like the 30% of graduates who vote for them do need to keep doing so if they want to continue to have a majority. And I think, yeah, I need to get my act together and actually do this blog. And I think there's a real problem in the conservative imagination. The university is Oxford, Cambridge, and the four London universities along the Strand, basically. But actually, the graduates who they need to do stuff and deliver for are someone who, um, you know, went to Teesside University. Uh, Probably they were from the area around Teesside, and they now live still in Redcar, or they live in Hartlepool, or they they need to deliver for that type of graduate. And we have at the moment, a government is flirting with a change to tuition-free fee repayment, which would basically amount to taking all of those graduates and going, you currently don't pay anything back. You don't have this 9% rate because you are in that 19 to 26K bracket. You're in parts of uh, the country where there's very poor social mobility, um, you are asset rich because you have housing under, you know, you're, you know, you're on a help to buy. Yada, yada, yada. But what we're going to do is we're going to take quite a lot of your income away through the single. And even though those people are basically on the kind of in terms of the sensible center as envisaged by Downing Street strategy of, you know, people who basically go, I think and those tweets are bad, but the suspension is. Yeah, those those people do think that they don't care about it all that much. But that's broad. You know, they're broadly in you know, that the, the middle opinion of people who, you know, you ask them, do you support the England players kneeling? And they go, yeah, I guess. Or they go something like, I don't know. Like, do you think it's wrong to boo? And they're like, yeah, it's also wrong to boo. Right. That that middle ground of voters they need to hold on to. I think in this strategy is just so repellent to that type of voter. 
if it's if it's implemented at all, it amounts to going, hey, we've bankrupted the anchor institution in your town. We have a bunch of stuff about like the student experience and speaks only to Oxford, LSE, King's, Cambridge, and um, UCL, and we've raised your taxes by a lot. Please vote for us. Yeah, I just, it's quite dispiriting, right, for a government with the majority's only yeah, it's B-plot to be kind of pointing at things it could fix overnight and mm. going, oh, woogity woogity, that's a big scary problem. The thing is, though, Labour hates the culture war stuff. He's absolutely paralysed by it in a way that I find sometimes a bit funny because I often think that it's set up in a way that they could. As we were just saying, most people in the UK think, you know, that it's bad to be racist or sexist or whatever and don't like big extreme quote-unquote woke-seeming reactions to it, but are broadly on, you know, on the anti-racist side. I think Labour often runs scared from having those conversations about statues or whatever, rather than being that voice of, oh, well, we actually think that, you know, it's good to not be racist. Taking the knee is fine to show that you don't want to be racist. People can have different opinions about it, but, you know, it's we think that it's a good thing to show that you don't want to be racist. And, you know, I just think that there's actually a kind of more reasonable position that Labour could take, but Labour is absolutely terrified of it. And that's where I think this strategy works best because Labour is finding it really hard to occupy a kind of more reasonable, progressive, but happy to talk about a position on the culture wars thing. And so it ends up being painted as as the party that's in favour of tearing down all the statues and so on because of the silence it largely maintains over it, like peppered with interventions from some backbench MPs, some kind of like quite tepid, stressed out responses by Keir Starmer on it. So I think I think in that sense, because of Labour's own anxieties, it's not a terrible culture war strategy for the Conservatives. Yeah, the, the PLP is so cross, right, with with Keir Starmer, with the reshuffle, with his team, right? So broadly, it's evolve or die for mm. the team around Keir Starmer, right? But one way or the other, I just think it's unlikely that the Labour Party will continue to, you know, say things only once, you know, to, to be honest, just not have enough politics. The only time that Labour has been effective on this stuff is when they kind of just, when Keir just said, off the cuff, of course, the statue should have gone down. Of course, it shouldn't have um, been thrown into. Yeah, it should have. Yeah, it should have been done in a democratic way. And whatever one thinks of that view personally, right? The polls came out, and that was basically exactly where the median voter was. And it's not one. It's not something that is politically painful. Now, the politically painful issues they created for themselves are actually on issues like foreign policy, right? Well, you know, again, pieces will be doing the coming thing, but you know. The fact that uh, one of their first acts was to go, well, we're going to abandon our position on, on Kashmir in order to win some votes, which I mean, is just grubby, I think, in lots of ways. But which I, And also, I think, was the, old, the Corbyn era position on Kashmir was the correct position, just from a moral perspective. But um, that's not a cultural issue. That's, mm-hmm. But that's one where they actually are and have difficulties because that does split across their electoral coalition. Whereas I think with all of this stuff, they're making it a little bit more complex than it needs to be. Yeah, one way or the other, this is why I say Labour will improve, right? The incumbent will improve or he'll be replaced. I, I just I just think then, then, then it's one or the other. And I think at that point, having a strategy which is kind of based on it only being effective... It's like this report, right? The race report is effective because the government's position is that they're 
not very well written, essentially middle of the road recommendations, and they already exist and they could have done already, are big, controversial. And the Labour Party's reaction to that was to say in a very muted way, look how big, controversial and new this report was going to be, other than going, well, we've actually already called for 19 out of 22 of these recommendations. Are you planning to do any of them? And I think it's so easy for Labour to up its game on the culture war stuff. It's not like the economic stuff where there are some painful trade-offs about tax spending, whether or not to go MMT, do you want to go MMT, you have to argue for it. I think the cultural stuff is genuinely much less painful for Labour than Labour is convinced it is. Although I say that and I think about the possible future candidates and I'm not sure any of them would be any better at navigating that either. But I just think it's always a mistake if your strategy is based on the other lot can't possibly up their game at all on it. A lot of the time they do. And when I interviewed Ed Miliband about this, we talked about the culture wars stuff. So he was one of the authors of the Labour Together report, which is the place where you find a sort of the most explicit statement of the Labour strategy of basically we're going to make a big, bold economic offer to unite our diverse voter coalition and we'll try not to talk about culture war stuff so much. And Ed Miliband did basically agree that like that's the strategy, but with some caveats that he hates talking about culture wars in the abstract and would rather talk about individual policy issues, which is entirely fair. And the thing is that that's, Clearly, they are struggling with that approach at the moment. It's not going great for them. (laughs) The thing is that probably looking at the recent reshuffle, even though it was a muted reshuffle, it looks as though they're going to be leaning into that more rather than less so because all of the people who have seen significant promotions or most of them are people involved with that Labour Together report. There, you know, there's a huge handful of them. And there was a lot of briefing after the reshuffle, sort of to the effect of, look how many Labour Together people have been promoted. Oh yeah, we're gonna really double down on this. And you know, this is this is, you know, the signal or the roadmap for how you know how Kier is going to recover and improve. And so I suppose maybe it could be both that the Labour leadership simultaneously ups its game and embraces the Labour Together strategy even more. But I don't know if that's necessarily possible. Obviously, the Labour Together report is a little bit ambiguous because how do you dial down culture wars issues? And it does also talk about, you know, knowing when to identify issues where you're prepared to have the argument with voters and issues where you aren't. So there's maybe some room for manoeuvre in that. But in general, I think that they're maybe going to be more wedded to being sort of painfully silent on culture wars issues and going a bit pale and queasy whenever you're asked a question about statues. I think that could get worse for Labour. And then even though this is such an easy strategy to tackle, the Conservatives will do quite well out of it. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Alva Ray, and our political editor, Stephen Bush. You can find me on Twitter at PronouncedAlva. And you can find me on Twitter at, at StephenKB. We're produced by Chris Stone, and our music is Devil with the Devil, licensed under Creative Commons. Thanks for listening. Please leave us a review, and don't forget to rate and subscribe.